attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where Each week, I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Courtney Bauer, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, It's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Courtney Bauer is a principal of LA-based architectural firm Verse Design, which also has a sister studio in Shanghai, which I also want to learn about. Courtney leverages more than 20 years of focused experience in architectural planning, design, contract administration on a variety of projects in the U.S. and in China. Her work is committed to the ideas and importance of efficient and sustainable construction while advocating for the implementation of innovation in our built environment. As principal, Courtney's strengths lie in her ability to adroitly identify a project's status and manage teams to exceed delivery expectations. And I love those three words, exceed delivery expectations. There's so many layers to those three words and how important they are in the success of architecture firms. Uh, So I want to talk about that and how you do that. How do you exceed delivery expectations for your clients? But before we do that, I want to know your story. I want to know your origin story. So when did you discover your passion for being an architect and maybe who or what inspired you to get started in the profession? Right. So it's always fun to dive back into your younger years. I came to architecture pretty early on. So in high school, I went to a very small high school and my calculus teacher said, oh, you know, what are you going to do? And you like art, you're, you're good at this math stuff. So you should, you should look at architecture. 
said, okay, this is interesting. Somebody's giving me a direction because I, I didn't know what to, you know. Where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Delaware. So okay. on the East Coast in a small, small beach town in Delaware. So the bottom of it. Um, my parents were actually originally from DC, not too far away, um, which is where I ended up doing my undergrad work. And, but they wanted to move to a rural setting to kind of raise their family, which I think when I was younger, I questioned, but really, really appreciate that move from that. So in high school, I said, hey, architecture, check that out. And I went to an experiences program, a summer program for architecture, where you kind of stay at the school for, I don't know, it was a few weeks, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. And and I loved it. Um, And then I learned a lot that I had these roots in my family. My dad's a builder. Yeah. He's a carpenter. He built our house. I had worked on all of those things, but I hadn't synthesized it to like, hey, there's architecture here. Did you grow up in construction? Yeah. I mean, my dad, like I said, he built the house. So, I mean, he was always doing projects on the house. I was up on the roof, like re-roofing, building the guardrail, like whatever it was. Yeah. I was around that. And then I had an uncle who was trained as an architect. And I had a great uncle who was a very well-known residential architect that I never met, you know, but I had all these roots in the professional. Yeah. So that's how I started. And I went to DC. So I got out of my little rural area. I said, okay, I'm studying architecture. I'm not going to go to Virginia Tech, which was like a school in the area that had a great program, but it was rural. So I was like, no, I'm going to put myself in DC. So I went back to DC, did my undergraduate there. Love that. I stopped after four years and actually went into the workforce because I wanted to think about my master's degree, but I was always leaning towards that. But I wanted to make sure that I was getting new knowledge and new tools through that. So at that time, that was the kind of the beginning of the big push on 3D software, whatever, whatever it was, 3D Studio Max, all these few things were floating around there. But So I went out into the workforce, which was amazing. And I got to work at a site office for a huge high rise in Miami right out of undergraduate school. So I did that right away, my eyes wide open, and then went back to graduate school. And I went to Pratt and, you know, I got a whole different tool set there, which was wonderful. And, And so that's kind of where I've come to say that, you know, I do look for the innovation in our built environment. I have a lot of those interests, but doing it in a smart way where it actually makes sense for our built world, makes sense for the guys that are out there, usually guys that are out there trying to build and kind of merging all of those voices and all of those themes. Yeah. So you said that you look for innovation in the work that you do. Does that come naturally or is that part of your education or the programs that you were educated with sort of move you to that direction or is that just part of your nature? I feel like that is a lot about architecture schooling, at least the schools that I went to. I mean, I think you have to have a bit of that in you already. But I do feel like the programs that I went to really challenged you to think and to problem solve and to think outside of the box to try and find the most effective way to problem solve or find that new moment, whether that's an experiential moment or 
a creative way to solve a problem more efficiently. So you get to the next step quicker so that you have more time for other things in the project. So you started off in Delaware, you went to school in DC, you went to work in Miami, uh-huh. and then back to New York for grad school at Pratt. Yeah. How did you end up in LA to start your firm? Right. So I was like, okay, well, I've done the East Coast cities. I really would like somewhere a little warm, but I've already done Miami, so let me try LA. Plus, I had a great professor at Pratt that was a visiting studio professor. And so I kind of connected with him and said, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm wrapping up. I don't think I can stay in New York. It's too cold. And I don't know if I'll ever (laughs) be able to afford a sizable place to live. So you know, I'm still looking for a city. So I made my way out to LA. And I was out here. I've actually been in LA twice. So I did move back east when we had the the downturn in like 2009, 2010. So when you went to LA, did you go to LA to start a firm or did you go to LA to work with somebody else? I worked with someone else when I first moved out here. I... I'm trying to remember if I had my license already at that point. But anyway, I worked, I coupled up with Patterns Architecture, a husband and wife team. And then I was teaching a lot when I first moved out here. Where did you teach? I taught at SciArc primarily, but I also picked up studios at USC and UCLA. So all three of the big schools here. And that's how I connected with Paul. So we connected through that academic Half there at USC, he needed a substitute, actually. Um, And so we got together. He was already making moves in China to kind of go over there and do some things with the USC program abroad, but then also some of his connections there for actual work and clients. So we met up and did a studio together at USC, and that went really well. And then we did a competition together. So the Bungalow High Speed Rail competition, we worked on and actually won that commission. And that was one of the things that helped get himself established in China or make that transition, I should say, because he already had USC um, was already sending him over or giving him the opportunity to go over to the academic program over there. And... So then this commission to actually build that project, having won that, really cemented that move. So packed up and moved his whole family over. I wasn't quite ready to move over to China, so I did. <laughs> so I didn't take that part of the journey with him. But, you know, we stayed in contact and we actually got that Bungalow High Speed Rail built, which is amazing. Wow. So when you did that project, did you have a firm established or did you just come together to collaborate for that project? We just collaborated on that project. I mean, he, Paul was primarily uh, academic, but he had a Paul Tang Architects kind of small practice, just picking up small projects here and there, things like that. But he was primarily academic. So we got the opportunity for the China competition. And so at that stage, a lot of the competitions that were happening in China, because they're just growing so fast, they were doing a lot of these competitions, but they were invited. They weren't just open call competitions. Yeah. And they were just really trying to kind of infuse some of the Western kind of influence on architecture kind of into their built environment. And and it was just growing so fast. I think they just needed all hands on deck. (laughs) All architects (laughs) come over. So anyway, one that commission 
built that. And then through that process, obviously, Paul, even with a few people from the office, from the States, wasn't going to be able to handle that. So the way that we really leveraged that project and then the academic kind of platform of being a professor was to team up with the local design institutes, which are a common way to get work done in China. They have very standardized drawing packages. Also, they have that full production team. And then also partnering with other professional architects there, as opposed to trying to just transplant a U.S. office in China, but really merge those things with the already established offices there. And so that's where first design, that name, and that really crystallized was through that project and kind of merging with those professionals there in China. So then they reestablished partnership there, first design, um, and worked full steam ahead on, you know, the vast amount of built work that was going on at that moment in China. It was just crazy, right? So um, able to kind of engage in that and use, the again, the platform of being a professor from the States, it kind of instantly gave credibility, Yeah, which is helpful, right? You need that. So to find these different ways to kind of give yourself credibility, regardless of who you're with. Okay, we're in another country. This is how we're going to establish credibility. And vice versa, how do you establish credibility with your your various kind of developer partners, even here in the States? So using that and continuing to build the practice that way, and then had an opportunity as some of those developers, clients were looking for opportunities in the States and to kind of bring some of their funds over here and diversify and things of that nature. You know, Paul had the opportunity to follow one of those clients basically back over for a project. That's very interesting. I've spoken to other small firms who've started in the U.S. and expanded to international clients and some to China. I've never spoken to anybody who was a U.S.-based architect, launched their firm in China, and then brought it back to the U.S., through the connections that were established in China. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's unique. It's very unique. So, but it's worked and we're grateful for that. And it has a lot to do with just relationships and fostering those conversations, relationships, and being an ambassador to all of these different entities. And so being able to bridge those cultures, being able to bridge academics and business, being able to bridge Chinese culture and U.S. culture really trying to understand what is important and what is unique about those and being able to discuss them so that everyone understands where, you know, how they need to operate because that's often where a lot of the trouble comes for, for you know, I'm saying China because that's where sister office is, but yeah. it could be any country. There's different ways of doing business. I mean, right. you would think that it would be pretty similar, but it's not. <laughs> there are, you know, a lot of, cultural things that are different and different mechanisms and delivery styles and things like that. And so educating on those differences so that everyone knows what to expect and they can navigate through the process in a different setting is challenging and important, right? And so taking on that challenge 
head on and not kind of shying away from that makes us a really good partner for a lot of developers. So currently you have an office in Shanghai and an office in LA? Right. So the two offices are operating. They're, they're sister offices, so the finances aren't mingled. And- so two separate companies, but they basically work as one firm? Yeah, we share project knowledge, you know, we communicate. But because the Shanghai office, sorry, they still use the LDI to do kind of production and things like that. So it's a little bit different in terms of the project delivery. But in terms of being kind of client ambassador, that part is very much the same. The office grew in Shanghai quite rapidly because they were able to work with developers and say, okay you've got this huge piece of property, we need to do a master plan, but like, let us work with you through the mix of product that you need to deliver, to make it unique. And so having the architect do that with the developer is a very different way than just a developer sitting with their own perspective. Like, okay, I want to sell. This is what I know sells. Let me look at my spreadsheets and see, okay, I need 500 units, this size, this price, send it up. When you get the architect involved, then it can become to have a lot more to do with the sensibility of the the various sites, the sensibility of like what the agencies also want, what the zoning needs in that area, and really trying to mesh those things together to develop a product that is more livable, hopefully, for the community in line with what the agencies need or want from a zoning standpoint. And then also often because those products are unique, and maybe they have a wider range, a better output for the developer in the end, right? Their bottom line is turns out better because they've got that different perspective. And so they do that in Shanghai and we do that here as well. Really try and get in our developers primarily since 2015 have been private developers here. And we just are constantly communicating with them and reviewing sites early and often with them. So they'll say, okay, I I bought this one piece of property. I'm looking at buying a couple other pieces of property over here. What can I do? What is the zone? And so then we we don't just do like a zoning review because that's pretty simple, right? They can do that. But we try and look at that. We look at the general plans in California. They're constantly updating these things. They have requirements to meet a lot of um, milestones with with the state. So often you get a zoning document and a planning guide that aren't aligned, right? So they've got the idea, okay, this is where we want to move the city. But the administration side of getting the zoning document update is maybe a couple years behind, right? right? And so you got to read all of that and talk to the city and really figure out, okay, what is happening? What currently is happening in terms of your developments? Where are you envisioning this going so that we can work between the documents and really work for the developer to kind of push the boundaries where we can, where it is in line with the city and it makes sense so that their projects pencil, those sites work, and then the city is still on target and getting what they what they need and their constituents want, right? Want development in some areas, don't want it in other areas. Where's the real need? Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, 
delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. So when you talk about ambassador to the client, that's what you're talking about? That you're representing them and looking beyond what they think that they want? Often, yeah. It starts there, right? When we're looking at sites, but we really carry that through a project. So we are a small office, but we do full service. We also look at lots of ways to kind of team up with other offices, but we do full project delivery. So all the way through CA, we're, we're capable of doing that. And so we often find ourselves kind of project managing, being an owner's rep in a lot of cases. And that's hard <laughs> to kind of play both sides when we have to, but sometimes we need to do that because if the client team is foreign, we take on that responsibility to make sure that they're being represented properly and not taken advantage of because perhaps they don't have the staff with knowledge of exactly how the business needed to be run here or, or the importance of one decision or another. So we do kind of step out of our architectural shoes often to take on that when the client needs it. And we're happy to stay in our you know regular yeah. role if they don't need that. But we look for the best for the project overall and make sure that we understand that it needs to be successful for a lot of different entities along for the owner, for the end user. Obviously we have our, you know, we want a successful build project that everyone can be proud of, right? So it needs to 
work on a lot of different levels and we try our best to represent the project always, not VDLA, right? Not or Courtney or Paul, but the project. What is best for this project right here, right now, so that it moves forward, so that the client isn't losing money, right? I mean, you know, that's important. They can't do that. Otherwise, who knows what might happen? Project might stop or... They won't come back. We want to do another project, right? So anyway, we try and make sure that we're always advocating for the project. And then everyone else falls in line. So you're describing a very specific client experience that you've developed. Is that something that is codified and is part of your brand and what you promote when you're selling your services? Or is it just the way you do things and it's just part of your culture? It's... Definitely part of our culture through all of our staff. We talk about it constantly. It's how we evaluate, like, you know, there's decisions to be made. Okay, how are we going to do this? That is the lens of which we start to look through it. And yes, we talk about it with our developers, but we're not very good. Um, <laughs> we, we don't promote ourselves that much. So, you know, we talk about it and, and it is part of our service package for sure. But we haven't done a lot of that. You know. right, there's no billboard saying, hey, we take care of clients. No. <laughs> so how big is the firm? You said it's a small firm. How many people work? Yeah, we're six right now. We have consultants that we collaborate with. So we've got one that we're working full-time with right now, project-based, right? So he is up in the Bay Area because we're in LA, but a lot of our work is up in the Bay Area. So he's kind of boots on the ground for us there. He's been working full-time with us for a couple of years. So. Six to eight. Recently, we've been up to almost 20. When we had some just project demands, we had a couple projects filing in all at the same time, but they've tapered back. And that's really hard growing a a practice, right? So 2015, kind of reestablish. And that's one of the hardest challenges, I think, of being a small practice is Figuring out how to grow with your staff. Our staff is really important to us and kind of um, nurturing them and nurturing our VDLA family. Want the practice to grow, the projects come in, you've got people that will inevitably come through the practice and then leave. And when we know that, we don't expect as we hire for people to kind of be there. Paul calls them lifers. We, We don't expect lifers, you know. And we really just want to make sure that as our paths merge with any of the staff, that it's beneficial and productive for both of us because that's going to make the work product and the future relationships that much better. So that's our goal is that when people come in, we understand like... We try and understand. Sometimes they don't always know, but we try and understand their current trajectory in the profession, what they're looking to do, what they're looking to learn or where they're headed so that we can make sure that they get some of that experience and and move forward that way. And ultimately, if things work out, they either move on to do their next step, whether that's understanding this and moving into development. We've had two (laughs) staff that have gone just into the development side. Yeah, And that's coming, I think, from our bias on how we approach work. Like we understand, you know, we work to understand all of the nitty gritty of how the actual development works so that we can make the best decisions for the project. So they have their minds kind of open to that already. Yeah, that says a lot about the practice that, you know, you're serving developers, that you have a staff that's so well in tune with what developers do and want 
that some of them actually go off and do it because they're so good at it. They understand how it's done and so they can go off and, and do it. So that says a lot about the culture of your firm and the way the staff is being trained, that they have that ability to do that. Yeah. What type of development do you do? Your clients are primarily developers, but are they commercial projects, residential projects? Yeah, it's mostly commercial. We haven't actually gotten any residential built since we reestablished the office. We worked on a couple in the earlier stages. Of- what type of commercial work is it? Thus far, it's been like office building, which is... Office building. Yeah. Here in the States. Well, that's not true. It's not just office building. Office building is the largest project that we've done, but we've done hotel renovations. We've done a large kind of resort. We worked on a large resort entitlement package up north of Napa. So we have a a range and a variety there, but it seemed for a while that we were working with kind of office, speculative office development. Post-pandemic, do you see any big changes in the way that you're designing office space? You know, we haven't actually changed the office, but there's not much demand for designing new office space, right? Right. But we were already, and I think perhaps it's coming from the work having been primarily in the Bay Area, we are already incorporating a lot of, I want to call them amenity spaces, but just kind of outside spaces and and things of that nature. So there was already an airiness to the office buildings from what you may have thought of 10 years prior. So that may also have to do with why we haven't seen a big... Yeah, I can imagine that developers who are going to invest in office space are going to be very careful on how it's designed so it can flex with the flexibility of the culture, right? This culture right now is very malleable, right? It's it's shifting every day. It's changing, right? Since the pandemic, we were locked up in our houses and working remotely for three years. Now we're moving back into office space. Lots of firms, lots of companies moving 100% back to to office space, other companies making the permanent change that there is this flexible work environment, that flexibility within the built environment and the spaces that we use to work are going to inherently need to be flexible, right? That if they're designed for one way of working, that if the culture shifts again, then those buildings are obsolete or need to you know, have major renovations in order for them to accommodate the new way of work. That's right. That's right. So one of the things kind of coming right out of the remote work was, well, obviously people were saying, oh, we're never going to need office spaces again. Okay, no, we do need them. But before they were trying to fit people in at, you know, very limited square foot per person. So now we're going to need less. But no, what happens is they just, we just need more space for each person to kind of keep that flexibility. And that allows you to maybe spread out or maybe put in more partitions if you need to or, or accommodate these these various changes. And it does make the spaces want to, and then for the developer and the end user, be more livable, right? To make sure that you've got some ability to kind of get out or get fresh air in. And these are trends also that from kind of the engineering side from the mechanical and daylighting and things like that, that the buildings were already kind of trending towards. So this is just helping push that agenda. What does the future look like for VDLA in the next five years or so? What are your plans as you grow? 
That's a good question. <laughs> but you're continuing to do work in China, right? And that's also something that's continuously changing, right? With the political environment. Yeah. So you have lots of sort of changes happening in the work that you do and the structure of your company. And so do you have a plan or a strategy to continue to grow and move forward as things continue to shift? I think so immediately in the next couple of years, when we first reestablished 2015, we were saying, okay, we're going to really try and make sure we get our foothold back into US market and get those projects established. And we, I don't want to say distance, but we said, okay, Shanghai, you're going to do your projects. Now we're at the point where we really want to work again together even more, kind of like mix the studios even more and have a little bit more cross-fertilization, which is very interesting in the political climate that we're in, but we're not going to be shy about that. It doesn't, Yeah, we're architects and we're doing good things for the built environment. So we're just going to let the <laughs> politics figure that. Figure itself out. That's all you can do. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have a whole lot of control over that. So you can just do what you're going to do. Yeah. So we are looking to kind of re-engage the studios a little bit more right now. And so that should be really interesting. And then we have also been really trying to push forward on, well, one of the things that is a sector that is, we feel like kind of growing, it's got a lot of potential is the resort sector. Right now. And so we have done a few hotels and a little bit of that. So we're, we're really looking to kind of continue into that. Yeah. I think resort architecture and specifically experiential space yeah. is a huge future trend, Yeah, right? As the internet grows and retail moves online and continues to move online, retail space and hospitality space and all of these different types of architecture needs the shift in order to be more experience-based, right? People move to go to places at resorts or go to retail spaces where there's a destination there, right? There's something there that they want to experience, right? If they're just buying something, they're just going to go on Amazon and buy it. But if they want to have an experience, then they'll go to that space. That's a big trend as we continue to move forward. Yeah, it's a big draw. And travel is really, really busy right now, which is a fun thing. Yeah. There'll be another round of cross-fertilization of kind of ideas and things like that as people intensely move around the world, really, you know? Yes. <laughs> it's not uncommon at all to have people in Northern Europe and just everywhere and for a couple of weeks and then come back and just have a whole perspective on things. My son just told me that he's right now living in New York City and he has a tech company and it's flexible. He can work from wherever he wants. And he has a whole group of peers who have similar situations and they all live in New York City. And they just decided that when their leases are up, they're going to Europe and they don't know where they're just going and they're going to continue growing their companies from Europe. And then when they're tired of Europe, they're going to come back to the US and find a different city to live in. And they're just going to keep doing what they want to do. It's crazy. They're young. At some point, I feel like you do. Oh, for that, sure. That's a fun thing, right? But at some point, you do put down your roots and say, okay, it's great. That's Absolutely. fine. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I want to just kind of anchor and make sure that I've got a different type of community, right? There's community of like, okay, we're connected and we're moving around. But then there's the community of like, okay, I know my neighbors there and I know their routine and I can go right. on the door when I need something or like, you know, the 
gas men's coming to check the meter. Like I need them to like let open the door or let the cat out or whatever. It's just yes. a different, yeah. different network that we all need. Yeah. I love that we're living in a time where all of that's possible. Yeah. Right. That that we can anchor in and be be in one place and be connected throughout the entire world, like you and I are talking right now. Right. And it doesn't matter where we are, instant connection. And you can also just pick up and fly anywhere in the world, virtually anywhere in the world, and be there tomorrow, you know, and continue to do what you're doing at your home base primarily, depending on what you do. But it's an interesting time for sure. So as we wrap up, Courtney, I'd love to ask you the question I ask all my guests, and I'm interested in your answer as a firm owner. So what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? So one thing that I think for us, and perhaps it's stemming from kind of our academic background and kind of the teaching, but this notion within the firm of transparency and helping or making sure that everyone in the office is exposed to as much as they can be. And in terms of the business, that also includes the financial side, which for a long time, I think the way of working in the office was there were a couple of people that knew the numbers and that was that. And everyone was like, here's the task that you have to do. But really having that transparency so people kind of see what it costs to run the business you know, as much as you can show that and keep everybody's privacy. But then this is what it costs to run the project. This is what your billable hours are. And it just that transparency and openness helps the business and helps each one of those individuals if they, you know, move on. Right. But it just gives you a whole new perspective that's really important because you can get lost in the design work, you can get lost or consumed in making any one decision. But when you really try and get perspective on that, it helps. It helps make that more fluid. So I think that's something that's really helpful for everybody. Yeah, that's great advice. Her name is Courtney Bauer, and the firm name is Verse Design. You can check out all about Verse Design and all the work that they're doing, both in Shanghai and in LA. You can connect to the Shanghai office through vdla.co as well. Yeah. Yeah. So vdla.co is a website. Go check it out. Courtney, thank you. I appreciate you for coming by here and sharing your story and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. I look forward to talking to you soon. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlepage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.